marks history in the life of our church here at Placerita. We are hoping to end what I began when I first arrived here three years, three years ago. We're going to end today, Lord willing, the book of Ephesians. And so open up, if you will, with me to Ephesians chapter 6 as we look at this salutation or this last part of the book. And as you turn there, I just want to let you know that uh, our family was away this week. Lisa and I, with our kids, had the great privilege of traveling uh, away to do a family camp with Andy Woodfield, who will, by the way, be here next Sunday preaching in my stead while I'm in um, Fiji. And uh, he's from New Zealand. He loves the Lord, and he pastors a church in Hickman Community Church. And so many months ago, he invited me to come speak at their family camp Thursday, Friday, and Saturday of this past week. And so I had checked the uh, distance to this camp that was going to be close to, camp, uh, to Lake Pinecrest, and it was a camp with kind of a funny name that looked kind of like, it's, it's called Chiquapin, but, uh, but when I went to check it and the distance from here to there, it was like five and a half hours away. You just kind of go up the five, the 99, and you kind of head to the right and to the mountains, and there's the camp. And I'm like, hey, no problem, we'll be there. So the next day, we load up the van, we take our family, and we're kind of rushed, uh, just kind of getting packed and out the door. And so I type in what I thought was Camp Chiquapin, but instead, Camp Chiquita came up. And so I'm thinking Chiquita, Chiquapin, must be the same place, you know, come on. So, uh, but I noticed it's like six and a half hours away, and I'm thinking, oh, well, there must be traffic, or this must be, a, you know, a little longer than I thought. So sure, because I looked at the directions, and it said go up the five, up the 99, and then off to the right, up into the mountains. And so I'm thinking, well, it's the same place. So we kind of head all the way up to Camp Chiquita, and when we pulled into the campground, uh, I realized that we were in trouble. Uh, we pull around this campground, and it was full of gypsies. It was filled with druggies, and it was filled with tents and these kind of half campers that had kind of grown into the ground with trees growing out of them. Um, one lady's watering her yard with like three blades of grass. And then this other guy motioned for me to stop, or we, I think, decided to stop because we were completely lost. And he said, and he kind of had that look, you know, the look. So he's like, what are you doing? You're going over five miles an hour. You could run over an animal. And I'm like, sir, I am so sorry. I am looking for Camp Chiquita. And he said, this is it. And I'm like, no, it's not. This is not Camp Chiquita. I'm looking, <laughs> I'm looking for Camp Chiquita, you know, church camp, Hickman Community Church. There's supposed to be a cafeteria and cabins and Lake Pinecrest. And he's like, oh. You know, this, this is, this, you're in the wrong spot, or it's down the road. And so we pulled down the road a little bit into a ranger, a ranger station, and I asked them the same question, and they just looked at me funny and said, that is Camp Chiquita. I'm like, that guys, that is not Camp Chiquita. You, you guys obviously don't know what you're talking about. And so uh, I went and rechecked the email, and sure enough, it said Camp Chiquapin on Pinecrest. And so I pulled up then the right address, only to find out it was three hours away. So, needless to say, we didn't arrive until after 10 p.m., missed the night session, and the, they almost fired me. They were just like, just go on home. Just, just go home. If you can't find this camp, just get out of here. But, hey, just as a reminder, right, that we got to roll with the flow. I mean, I came back to my wife, and I'm like, hey, baby, you want to kill me now or later? We're like three. We're still three hours away, and the kids are like, what? And I'm like, uh, well, let's just make some fun out of it because we're going to be on the road another three hours. So our kids did awesome. I was super encouraged by their uh, great uh, demeanor. My wife did not kill me, thank the Lord. And uh, we ended up getting there and having a great time all day Thursday, or excuse me, all day Friday and Saturday through noon. And I uh, came back here last night. So I just wanted to warn you about that story in case Andy Woodfield tries to, uh, uh, you know, exploit me next week when he's here. 
uh, that you've already heard the story. Don't even laugh. Just, just look at him with a straight face and just be like, yep, that's our pastor. He's faithful to get there eventually. He will get there eventually. So anyway, all right, here we are in Ephesians chapter 6, wrapping up, as I mentioned, this great epistle. And we'll be looking at final greetings or what is sometimes called the salutation of a letter here in Ephesians 6, 21 through 24. I've entitled the message, as you see in your outline and there on the screen, as last words. And so let's see what Paul writes as he finishes up this letter to the church of Ephesus. He writes this, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with, an in, with a love incorruptible. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you, and thank you for the opportunity to look at these last verses from this precious epistle, which would encourage our hearts, even this morning, as we review a little bit of Paul's heart, and as we see a few final themes that he stresses here in these last words. Bless the preaching of your word, encourage our hearts, change us, and help us to be faithful as we live out what we learn today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, what you say in life sometimes is not as important as what you say at your death. When life is going well and there are no significant interruptions, the words we speak to one another have more of a temporal value. The kinds of thoughts we think and the conversations we have are often mild, pleasant, and lighthearted. But in death, everything changes. I have personally witnessed the death of at least 10 to 15 people when I used to work in medicine, and it's always a very interesting experience. It's always very striking to me to hear someone's last words right before they die. And I've heard from, uh, from people who are about to die and kind of get that uh, understanding that this is it. Sometimes they ask for their family. Sometimes they ask to be alone. I have seen some that are, have a rather contented expression on their face when they die, and I have seen others die in great agony. I have heard some bless God with the last breath of their life, and I've seen others curse God with great anger moments before their death. And in many cases, the last words are a summary statement of the life of the person who spoke them. They do not only tell you how a man died, but they also tell you how that man lived. These last words are the bookend of the legacy that that person leaves. And what they say in these moments tells you what they treasure, who they love, and what kind of condition their heart is in at the moment of their death. Consider the last words and the legacy of a few of these men. Henry David Thoreau, the writer who was known as a stubborn, arrogant individualist who said that he would have loved a snowstorm more than Christ and wanted nothing to do with the church, died on May the 6th, 1862. Shortly before his death, his aunt asked him if he had made his peace with God. Thoreau responded to her with his final cynical words, quote, I didn't know we'd ever quarreled. 
Contrast Thoreau's legacy with the great evangelist D.L. Moody and his deathbed words. He was reported to have turned to his boys who were there at his bedside, and he said this, quote, If God be your partner, make your plans large. Two themes that are continually repeated and contrasted by those who are near death's door. And one is a theme of hopelessness, ominous words that are depressing with whispers of a feared fate. But the other theme of so many who die is hopefulness, gleeful shouts in its confident message that this isn't it, that death is not the end, it's only the beginning. And ponder those two contrasts, deathbed type quotes of hopelessness or hopefulness as, as you consider a few more of these quotes. One person said, bring down the curtain, the farce is over. That was a French philosopher and comic, Francis Rebellius, who died in 1553. Our God is the God from whom cometh salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape death. Martin Luther, who died just eight years earlier. Contrast these two quotes. I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. O Christ, O Jesus Christ. That was quoted by Voltaire. Verses. I enjoy heaven already in my soul. My prayers are all converted into praises. And that was quoted by Augustus Toplady, author of the great hymn, Rock of Ages, who died at age 38. There was Thomas Paine, the great writer, has these final words attributed to him, quote, I would give worlds if I had them, if the age of reason had never been published. Oh, Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Stay with me. It is hell to be left alone. And contrast that with the great Puritan theologian Richard Baxter, who around the same time wrote at his death, I have pain, but I have peace. I have peace. Winston Churchill the man whose vision and battle cry was to never give up, said on his deathbed, quote, I am convinced that there is no hope. John Knox uttered these piercing words and then died, quote, live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. Before dying of a heart attack, Italo Siba, a Jewish novelist, told a nurse who was trying to administer last rites, quote, when you haven't prayed all your life, it's no use at the last moment. Billy Graham notes that when the great saint Joseph Everett was dying, he said, glory, 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 and continued exclaiming, glory, for over 25 minutes until he was whisked away by the angels to the gates of heaven. Quote, when I lived, I provided for everything, but death, now I must die, and I am unprepared to die. Caesar Borgia. There's August Strindberg, a Swedish dramatist who died in 1912 and left a legacy of forgiveness and redemption by dying with a Bible clasped tightly to his chest and said, quote, it is all atoned for. Edgar Allan Poe was said to have lived at best an erratic life of lies and drunkenness. He died in 1849 at the age of 40, having been found in a street near death saying, quote, Lord, help my poor soul. There was the deacon of the first century church named Stephen who died a martyr's death of stoning. And he said these words, quote, Lord, lay not this sin 
to their charge. There's the legacy of betrayal that was left by Judas Iscariot, who is recorded in the Bible as having said, quote, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. And then he went out and hung himself. Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the cross in the Gospel of John said, it is finished. Well, this morning, we're going to examine the last words of Paul. And these are not necessarily Paul's last words before his death, but these are Paul's last words to the church at Ephesus. The church of Ephesus would receive, however, one last divine exhortation as the apostle John would pen the words that Jesus revealed to him to the seven churches of Revelation. But as far as Paul is concerned with the church at Ephesus, what we'll look at this morning is Paul wrapping up what we know as one of these prison letters to the Ephesians, and Paul has some very specific things to say. This last sermon on the book of Ephesians, I've broken down into two simple headings. The first is, we're going to see here the revealing of the heart of Paul, and then we're going to see the revealing of the themes of the, uh, of the book of Ephesians. And so let's start with that first heading, if we can, revealing the heart of Paul. And let's just first say here, if you're taking notes, you can fill in this blank. Let's look at the transparency of Paul in his prayer request. There in verse 21, we see a little bit of an open, honest request that Paul gives. He says this, so that you may also know how I am and what I am doing. Now, as we looked at this passage last week, as far as the end of verses 18 through 20, we talked about the four alls of prayer. And we talked about how there, that last all of prayer is that we are to pray for all the saints. And then Paul says, pray also for me. And he's adamant about requesting prayer. Paul is not shy to request prayer. But we talked about last week, week how he's very focused on praying for two things. He prays that words would be given him. And he prays that he would be bold to proclaim them. That's what he wants to pray. He's asking Christians, other believers, pray for me that God would give me the right word. That he would give me the ability to speak the truth in love. That I would be a proclaimer of the gospel. And pray also for me that I would do it boldly as I ought. I, I ought to be an ambassador of Christ for he saved me. And so these were the requests that we looked at last week. But notice how now he's continuing here, if you will, as he ends, the, ends this book, that Paul is just being transparent, and he's wanting to develop uh, further in this relationship he has with the church by just sending somebody to share a little bit about how he's doing. Notice how it says here that he's saying, hey, so that you may know how I am and what I am doing. Paul had a relationship with the church in Ephesus. He had spent a little bit of time there. In fact, he spent at least two years there. In fact, if you forgot, he became its first pastor. It was Paul who planted this church. In fact, look with me, if you will, at Acts chapter 19, just to remind you again about the origin of this great church of Ephesus. It was in Acts 19 where Paul first showed up on his missionary journey, starting in verse 1. It says, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So this is where Paul first met the Ephesians and began to spend some time with them. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So obviously some of these disciples had not yet maybe can't come to full understanding of Christ because they're saying, we, we don't understand everything. And so in verse 3, he said to him, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. 
In other words, Paul say, hey, not good enough just to hear about John. Bless John the Baptist. But that was just a baptism to prepare you for the real deal. And the real deal is Christ has come, and he has died, and he has raised again. And then on hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some uh, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul had a close relationship with these Ephesian brothers. He had led them to the faith. He had led them from an old covenant to a new covenant. He had led them from the understanding of John the Baptist to the understanding of Jesus Christ. He had led them into an intimate relationship where they were filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and prophesying. They get run out of the area where he first started, and so he speaks for two years there in the hall of Tyrannus, and there he continues to teach and exhort the word of God. There was a close relationship. This was not Paul just showing up on some short mission trip and leaving town and never hearing from these people again. No, this is Paul spending part of his life with them. And in fact, in the next chapter, look at Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 and verse 17, we learn, now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. So a little bit later, after he had left that church, and later he had put Timothy in charge, also Apollos had spent some time preaching and teaching there. But the idea here is that he is now on his way to Rome, and he stops at Miletus, which isn't too far from Ephesus, and he sends for the elders. He wants to meet with them again. In verse 18, when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia serving the Lord with all humility and with all tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of our faith in, uh, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Well, here's, we're just seeing a little bit of the passion and the type of interaction that Paul had with the Ephesian elders. We learned already, as I just read in verse 19, verse 10, it was the church of Ephesus that planted, most likely, all of the other seven churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, right? And so it was in that area where Paul had spent a good part of his life. And so as he's writing the end of this letter, he's just saying, man, I wanted to keep you guys updated about what was happening here. I wanted to keep you guys updated about what was going on. He's transparent with others. I wonder how transparent you are with other believers. Have you become so superficial in your Christianity that when you touch base with somebody who's a brother or sister in Christ, you kind of touch base with them, you spend a little bit of time with them, and then you forget about them altogether? Or are you the type of Christian who says, you know what, I remember that prayer request 
I remember that struggle you're going through. How's it going? I, I wanted to update you about what God's doing in my life. I had shared some of this with you earlier. I'd like to share with you even more. I think that it's hard to keep up with everybody. I mean, I understand that. I'm not necessarily a proponent of literally keeping up with every single person on your Facebook page, all right? That could be exhausting. But I am saying if you have a real relationship with another brother or sister in Christ, how transparent are you with that brother and sister, and how well do you do keeping up with them? Are you transparent even with your prayer request. You know, when somebody says in your small group, hey, how could we pray for you? Are you one of those kind of people who says, no, I'm good. I'm good. I, if I had a good way, I'm good. And you kind of go to somebody else. Or are you one to say, you know what, would you just pray for me that God would give me the words this week at work that I would boldly proclaim the gospel? And by the way, let me update you about that situation that happened last week that I had asked for prayer. I, I just love the transparency of Paul. He's an apostle. He doesn't have to interact this way, but he does because he's a genuine believer of the word of God. And he is a prayer and he's encouraging us to pray. And now he's updating these friends of his from Ephesus with his uh, with his prayer request and kind of with updating them about what's happened in his own life. Are you transparent in petitioning God for his will to be done in your life? And are you sharing those requests with others? And are you following up with others as those requests come up. Well, next, I want to point out to you, not only do we see the transparency of Paul, but here, let's look at the friend of Paul and faithful servant. Obvious, he, here in verse 21, we're talking about Tychicus, uh, our, our, uh, yeah, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord will tell you everything. And so we see here Paul's friend, Tychicus, who was a Christian from Asia Minor, described here as a beloved brother. Uh, the word beloved means one who is in a very special relationship with another. This describes a friend who is dearly loved, a friend who is greatly valued. And what I've noticed about the Apostle Paul is he had a lot of friends like this. It wasn't just like Tychicus was the only one. Paul had Ananias, who came to him in Damascus, who came to the street called Straight to help Paul when he was blind. Remember that in Acts 9? That, that the, the Lord showed up to, to Saul at the time, blinded him. He went to the street called Straight, and nobody would show up, it seemed, other than Ananias, who God told him, hey, you got to go help out Saul. And Ananias first was like, no, man, I'm not going. Uh-uh, that guy's been killing people. I'm not showing up at Straight Street. I'm going to go to Crooked Street. You know, that's kind of how he felt maybe at the time, and yet he showed up and became a true friend of Paul who prayed for him. And then a little bit later, Paul had Barnabas, which means son of encouragement or comfort. And he was the one who brought the newly converted Paul back down to Jerusalem and presented him to the apostles and stood by him and served with him in future missionary journeys. He was a faithful friend, Barnabas was. And then Paul also had Silas, who suffered with him in the Philippian jail when they were in stocks at midnight and singing praises to God. And then all of a sudden, God shook that jail and the, the chains came loose. And they were able to witness to the Philippian jailer who repented and came to Christ. Paul had Aquila and Priscilla, who were fellow tent makers, and he actually worked with them for a while in Corinth. Paul had Apollos, who was a fellow preacher, who aided him here in the work in Ephesus. Paul even made friends with the centurion, who listened to him as they were about to be shipwrecked on their way to Rome. 
There's this one centurion who's like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow Paul. Paul seems to be strong, have courage and leadership, giving directions about taking some food and taking some water and don't be afraid. None of us will be lost. And the centurion would listen to him. And so here we're introduced to yet another friend of Paul. It's this man, Tychicus, whose name actually means fortunate. He was fortunate to be a friend of Paul. He was fortunate as a believer in Christ. He's also mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, and in Titus 3, verse 12. And what we learn about Tychicus is what's really said here in this verse is that he is a faithful minister. He's a faithful minister. This brother loves Christ. The word for minister there is the word diakonos, which is the word that could also be translated as servant. It's where we get the word deacon from, one of the offices of the church. And really what it means is a a minister or a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Tychicus was not one of those seven deacons appointed in Acts 6, but he was a faithful servant. He was a fellow minister of the gospel. No doubt Tychicus was the kind of friend that Paul mentioned in Galatians 6, 2, that would bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Could have been that he's thinking about Tychicus when he wrote that. Paul had many friends. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, we see how Tychicus is one of those who accompanied Paul and the other delegates from the Gentile churches in delivering gifts to the Jerusalem church. In fact, it was most likely Tychicus who would be the courier to bring this very letter to the church at Ephesus. It's possible this letter of Ephesians could have been delivered by the hand of Tychicus. In other words, if there was no Tychicus, there would be no Ephesians today. It could be in God's sovereign decree. It was this man who delivered this letter that you and I are reading this very morning. And so God sovereignly sustained his inerrant word through the hands of Tychicus. And so I wonder this morning if you have a friend like Tychicus. Do you have a friend, someone that you could trust with your life? Do you have a friend, somebody that you could trust with your most prized possessions? Do you have somebody that you would trust with your children if you had to leave or go out of town on an emergency that you know if you drop by this house that these friends would drop everything and watch your kids for as long as it took for you to take care of the business you need to take care of? Do you have a friend that will help you out in a pinch? Someone who will stand beside you when everyone else leaves? Do you have a friend like that this morning? Someone who will pray for you and point you to Christ Someone who will labor with you in the gospel ministry, shoulder to shoulder, day in and day out. And if you don't have a friend like that this morning, you need to pray for a friend like that. And I would say just the simple adage of, in order to be a friend like that, uh, to have a friend like that, you need to what? Be a friend like that, right? Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, man, I don't have that in my life. Well, how about being that for somebody else? How about for making it known to those in your small group, we are here for you. I don't care if you're moving. I don't care if you're sick. I don't care if you're having a baby. I don't care what's going on in your life. We're here for you. We got you covered. You don't have to call another small group. We got you covered. You know why? Because we love you. We're committed to you, and you can count on us as friends. And I think we need to rise up as a church and understand the, under, the, the, the depth that exists even in the Bible of friendships, whether it be David who had Jonathan or Elijah, Elijah who had Elisha or Paul who had Tychicus. Who do you have? Who would you call on in that moment who would go and tell somebody else everything about you in confidence and with faith and in a spirit of prayer and a way to exalt Christ and to communicate in a way that would honor the Lord? So we see here the transparency of Paul 
we see the friend of Paul. And the next blank says, we see the purpose of Paul. In verse 22, he says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And so this purpose of Paul that is given here in verse 22, I think we could break it down maybe into two purposes. Number one, to give information about his condition. Just simply giving that kind of information that would be helpful. Notice how verse 21 says Tychicus is going to tell them everything. If you want a good friend, you're going to trust that good friend is going to say everything, but say it in the right way with a heart that honors the Lord, not in a gossipy way, but in a way just says, hey, man, here's what's going on with Paul. This is where he needs prayer. This is where he needs help. This is where he's struggling. This is how we can help out. This is how we can be a good friend. Tychicus was that kind of friend to give pertinent and even here exhaustive, if needed, information to those in Ephesus. This is the very purpose which he, for which he has been sent. This is called keeping in touch. This is called maintaining the relationship. This is called caring enough about someone to write them a note. And not only is Paul giving the church of Ephesus updated information about his whereabouts, but he's really wanting to encourage their heart. So notice number two, he, he's actually trying to encourage the church of Ephesus. It's Paul who's in prison. It's Paul who had faced lashes many times. It's Paul that had been left for dead. It's Paul that was going to be shipwrecked, right? But he's here to offer encouragement. His whole point in sending Tychicus wasn't just to, just to give an update. It was also in giving the update, somehow the church of Ephesus would be encouraged to know that Paul was still walking with Christ, to know that Paul was still faithful in his mission journey, to know that Paul was still giving the gospel to all those that he came in contact with. And so I love how there in verse 22 again, that you may be encouraged in your hearts. The word encourage here is the word parakaleo. We know that as being uh, the, the word that, that, that describes the role of the Holy Spirit to come alongside of us. One of the possible meanings is to instill someone with courage or cheer. It can mean to comfort, to encourage, or to cheer up. And I always appreciate updates from friends when they send me a letter like that to encourage me. You know, sometimes I don't like to get a letter, just being honest with you. Sometimes as a pastor of a church, you kind of get a letter, and you kind of look at it, and you're like, okay, this is either going to be encouraging or this is going to be a trial. I'll open it later. You know, if I'm in, if I'm in a scary mode, I'm like, I'll open it later because I don't know which one it is. But, you know, we have to trust the Lord that we would encourage one another and that we give comfort to one another as we understand how to uh, just to, to, to stay in touch and communicate words that are encouraging. Paul was very purposeful in his relationships with people and he's very purposeful in sending Tychicus that, that, that Tychicus could encourage uh, the saints there at Ephesus. Paul was purposeful in, in the way how he addressed the, the church in Philippi, right? This is common to how Paul uh, wanted to encourage other churches. In Philippians 1, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in prayer of mine for you, and all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. In other words, he's not just writing this kind of heart to the church at Ephesus. He expressed this with the church at Philippi. He's purposeful in his communication. He wants to be a blessing to the church in Thessalonica. Remember how we said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, where he said, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Love that about Paul. He's like, hey, not only am I going to preach the word to you, I'm going to give myself to you. I'm going to live life with you. I, I want you to be a true friend that I could be an encouragement to. And the same is true 
in the close list that Paul has with these Ephesians. That's why even later in Acts 20, he knelt down and prayed with the Ephesian elders, and there was much weeping. And they embraced Paul, and they kissed him. They were sorrowful that this would be the last time that they would see his face again. And so this is Paul revealing his heart to his dear Ephesian brothers and sisters who he had spent at least two years uh, of his life with. And there is a closeness with Paul and the heart of this church. Well, the second thing I want us to see as Paul kind of ends this letter is he really, in verses 23 and 24, he reviews a few of the major themes of Ephesians. Now, he doesn't review all the themes of Ephesians, but I think he hits on some of the main ones. And these are some of the, the, the four words that he includes in a lot of his opening and ending remarks to a letter. And the first theme would be this, the theme of peace, the theme of peace. Notice how he writes in verse 23, peace be to the brothers. And when we talk about the word peace, we need to think about having peace with God through salvation and then having the peace of God to be comforted in the trials of life. And peace is one of the major themes of Ephesians. In fact, it's used seven times in this epistle. It starts off this way in Ephesians 1, where Paul, an apostle to Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints of those who are at Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God. And so he starts off with peace. He ends with peace. Paul is greeting these saints. And this is, again, a common way that he would greet them. And he's just saying, hey, let the peace of God be with you, Ephesus. May God be with you and may you be at peace. And then we see the word peace used again in Ephesians chapter 2. And it's in that section of where we see how believing Jews and believing Gentiles who were at enmity with one another, who hated each other, came together to form form one new man. And that's why he writes in Ephesians 2.14, speaking of Jesus, he says, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He writes in verse 17 how, how he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. In that context, he's saying, I preach peace to the Gentiles who are way outside of the covenants of promise. And I preach peace to the Jews who are inside the covenant community, but are nothing without Christ. And now the two of you, those inside the Jewish covenant community and those outside of that community are now one in a new community, a new man, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was adamant about believers having peace with one another. I think that if you have heard this book of Ephesians preached, and somehow you are still at odds with somebody in your family or somebody in this church or any other believer who knows Christ, and you say, you know what, I just can't talk to that person. Been there, done that. We just go our opposite ways. I don't say a word. I don't say a word about that person because that person's just nasty. All right, If that's the way you're feeling today, you're not at peace. You have not heeded the words of Paul in Ephesus to say, look, I don't care how opposite you are, in Christ, you are one. And at this church, we must learn to abide as one in one spirit, one faith, one baptism because of the peace that God provides. We're always hopefully striving to have that kind of peace. In fact, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, where the hinge of this whole epistle changes, and he talks about now that you have a high calling, let your conduct match your calling. And he says that we ought to be eager Verse 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of what? Bond of peace. We ought to be bound together by the peace of the gospel in such a way that we're eager. We're, we're not, you know, hesitant 
about pursuing unity. We're eager to have that kind of peace with one another. And then it's used at the end of the epistle in that armor of God passage in 615 as we studied about how we're to have shoes on our feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So if you know the gospel this morning, you have the peace, uh, the p- peace with God, uh, then you ought to be having the peace of God in those that you interact with and those that you spend time with and those that you know well. And so Paul's ending this with peace. Secondly, Paul kind of ends with one of these themes, the theme of love. How can we take time to adequately express all that he says about love in this epistle? But it's the word agape. It's used seven times. This is the kind of love defined by the quality of warm regard for and interest in others. This kind of love gives uh, this kind of love gives expecting nothing in return. This kind of love places others and their needs in front of your own. And that's what this epistle is all about. He starts off with love in 115 in his first prayer. And he's praying for the Ephesians that, that their love would be toward all the saints. He, he goes on to talk about in 4.2 how they would be growing with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing again with one another in love. And when you're bearing with one another in love, you're holding yourself back from one another. You're bearing up under uh, love that you could be committed to one another in an an incredible way. It's agape love. Uh, Above all, he says that we ought to be speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4, 15, that in the word, sure, we need to confront each other at times. We have to have serious talks with each other, even in a church context, but it's got to be in love, right? We speak the truth in love so that we are growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We see the word love again in verse 16 of chapter 4, how the body grows so that it builds itself up into love, that we are uh, the church, we are the building uh, of God, right? And so we're to have that love for each other. He uses the word love in Ephesians 5 to talk about how husbands ought to, what? Love. Your wife says, Christ loved the church, this sacrificial love, this love of I'll give up my very life for you because I love you. It's the kind of love that God had for the church, the kind of love that a husband should have for his wife. Uh, So do you have this kind of love? Can you really characterize yourself as I have agape love, the kind of love that expects nothing back, the kind of love that just gives because I've been loved, and so I want to love somebody else in the way I've been loved by Christ? A third theme that he mentions here is the theme of faith, mentioned again about seven times here in this epistle. A lot of people misunderstand faith. They think it's just a strong feeling. They think it's a faith in something superficial, just having faith in faith. They think that uh, it's just an optimistic viewpoint. But here when he's talking about faith, he's talking about trusting in God. And he's talking about ultimate salvation, that the just shall live by faith. That the way you come to Christ is not uh, by just hoping in, in the sense of from a worldly view, it may or may not happen, but it's a secure hope. It's faith in God. And that faith, by the way, doesn't come from yourself. A lot of people think, well, I just got to muster up enough faith. And if I get enough faith, then I can believe in God. No, you don't have faith. Faith is a gift. God has to give it to you so that you can believe and trust in that which you cannot see. And this is what Ephesians is about when he says, I've heard about your faith in 1.15. In 2.8, when he says, for by grace you've been saved through what? Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. There's the idea there that salvation, which includes grace and faith, is a gift of God. 
it was according uh, to, to God's uh, will that Christ would dwell in your hearts, 317, through faith. That's right, that the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in you. He makes his home in your heart, and that happens all through faith. We talked in 4.5 about there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. 4.12 talks about how we got to equip the saints for the work of the ministry uh, that until we all attain to the unity of faith. And then we have the shield of faith in 6.16 with which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one because we have an everyday kind of faith, not only that saved us, but on a day-by-day basis helps us overcome temptation. And it just puts out those fiery darts. They just get put out like that. You know, my, my kids love putting out fires. They just love that sound of like, hey, Dad, can I put that fire out, you know, and get a big you know, container of water and just, and it just goes, and they're like, oh, yeah, that felt good. Well, that's what it's like to have faith in God, right? You have a shield that when those temptations come with heat seeking missiles to destroy you, you're like, no, I'm trusting in God. I'm going to do this God's way. And so he's ending this letter reminding us of that we got to have this kind of peace and this kind of love and this kind of faith which comes from God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then one last final theme he mentions there in verse 24, grace. Grace be with you all, right? Grace be with you all who love Christ with an incorruptible love. Grace is divine favor. Grace is a gift. Grace is the generous disposition of God to fix his love upon you and to lavish you with eternal gifts of glory. Simply put, grace is giving you what you don't deserve. And the whole epistle highlights that from 1-2, grace to you. To one six, to the praise of his glorious grace. To one seven, according to the riches of his grace. To two five, by grace you have been saved. Two seven, the immeasurable riches of his grace. Two eight, for by grace you have been saved. Three two, stewardships of the grace of God. Three seven, that we are ministering according to the gift of God's grace. Three eight, that this grace was given. Four seven, by grace was given to each one of us. 429, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only which is good for building others up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And then that last final exhortation at the end of verse 24 there, he says to those, this is all given to those who what? Love God with the love incorruptible. This incorruptible love literally means loving God without decay. It means that you love him with a love that is imperishable. It will not fade away. It's used in the context of of immortality. The idea that you will love God forever with an incorruptible love. I don't think it's describing there necessarily that on a day-to-day basis, your love, unfortunately, waxes and wanes. That's just the truth of the Christian life. And we need to keep our love on Christ. But this kind of incorruptible love means that ultimately, because God has given you his grace, because God has given you faith, because God has given you his peace, that you can now love like this. It's a love that you you couldn't manage this kind of love on your own. Agape love doesn't start with you. It starts with God. And because it starts with God, it continues forever and to all eternity that you could love him with a love incorruptible. In other words, through peace and love and faith and grace, you will love Christ forever with an incorruptible love. This past week, I was reminded of a father and son team that I had forgotten about that years ago, there was a documentary done on Dick and Ricky Hoyt. 
the father and son team who had run together over 800 races. And more remarkable than the fellowship that this father and son enjoyed is the fact that this now adult son, Ricky, had been born with cerebral palsy. To race, he must be pulled, pushed, or carried by his father. And there is a part of us that might jump to the conclusion that Ricky doesn't race at all, but his father does all the work. But tens of thousands of viewers saw the son's role in their 1999 Ironman when wind, cold, and an equipment failure made progress hard on Ricky, even though his father was the one pedaling the modified tandem bike. Dick, the father, knelt down to his son, contorted and trembling in the cold. And as the two were still facing many more miles on this race with a defective bike, he said to, the father said to the child, belted on the bicycle seat, do you still want to keep going, son? And little Ricky, who is now a grown man, nodded, yes, dad, let's finish the race. In fact, it was Ricky that had requested that he and his dad would race together. And so sure enough, the dad would pull him in an inner tube as they swam through the ocean, and he would mount him on the front of his bike as he would ride 112 miles, and then he would also have him in a, a stroller and push him for the marathon. And they were always racing together. It was the father's power. It was the father's might. It was the father's grace, but the son still willfully and joyfully continued with his own contribution to make them an incredible team. Now, look, that, that particular illustration is not a perfect one, but as we summarize and finish the book of Ephesians, I think that's a great picture reminder that God takes you and I and he puts us in the race of life that we're called to run. And as, as ill-equipped as we are in our own strength and our own ability, God provides the power. God provides the grace. God provides you with every spiritual blessing in Christ to ascend to the heavenly realms, to overcome the evil one, to be a light for Christ in this world. And you and I are called to race. And so you've got a decision to make. You can either sit there while you're down and out and pout about it, or you can get on the bike and you can allow God to do the work generating in you so that you can finish your race well. Ending this last sermon, the take-home maybe from this particular message would be this. Number one, are you living a transparent life with others to encourage them in the Lord? If there's anything we need in this church, it's a little bit more transparency. We don't have it all together. Starting with me, we all struggle. And we need to be transparent, sharing, and requesting prayer from one another. Number two, are you at peace with others in a graceful way with a sincere faith? If you are here today and you are crossed with somebody at this church, God forbid that you would allow another week to go without saying, you know what, we're going to sit down with that couple we're going to work through this issue. We're going to talk about it, and we're going to speak the truth in love. And if you need a little help, we're here to help you. But God forbid that we couldn't experience the peace of God and experience that peace with one another. And then last, are you loving the Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love? It may appear to you that you're not capable, and I'm just here to say you can't. But Christ in you can. And if you'll continue just to come to him and say, Lord, I'm broken Lord, I'm weak. Lord, I'm incapable. Would you allow me to love you with an incorruptible love? 
so that I can truly have my conduct match my calling as a child of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to finish up this book of Ephesians and just to look at these final words from Paul to the church of Ephesus. So many things we could learn and apply in our own heart today. And I pray, God, that there be somebody here on this very day who doesn't really have peace with God because maybe as an individual, they've been doing it on their own. They've been trying to take a whack at life in their own strength. And I pray that on this day, even from this message, they would realize that they have a father who created them, who has shown them common grace. But without the transforming grace of the gospel, they will perish apart from God forever. And yet, God, you so loved the world that you gave your only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And as we've seen in this last message of the peace of God, and as we've seen the love of Christ, and as we've tasted of the faith that you provide, and we all know it to be from the grace, the gift of God through Christ Jesus, that we can know you today, that we can walk with you, and that we can be faithful to run the race that you've called us to. Not looking back, not staying down, but getting back up, resting in the finished work of the cross, and yet at the same time striving with all our might to glorify you in every area of our heart, every area of our family, in every area of this church. I pray that on this day, God, as we look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, that you would help us to love him with a love incorruptible. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.